Thank you, Cabot. Thank you for the privilege of being here this morning. I think I'm in Spring Grove, right? Let me have a word of prayer and then uh, we can get started here. Heavenly Father, what a joy and a privilege it is for us to gather together and to spend time in worship. Lord, we live in difficult times. And in the midst of those difficult times, Lord, we need your strength, we need your encouragement, we need you to be strengthening us and encouraging us and, and just preparing us for all that you have in store for us. And Lord, we confess that there are times when we look at the world around us and, and wonder what on earth is going on. But Lord, in the midst of that, we can find our strength in you. As David wondered at times, Lord, where are you? David always came to the conclusion that he could trust in you, that he could rejoice in you. And Lord, my prayer this morning is that as we look at your word, we too will be able to find with absolute certainty that we can trust in you in all things. And pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is an honor and a privilege to be here. I deeply appreciate uh, Cabot uh, inviting me. I appreciate his heart and ministry. Um, I've had the privilege of knowing Cabot for a number of years now. And as he mentioned, I served as a senior pastor at Living Grace Community Church for 33 years uh, down in Cary, Illinois. Then three years ago, three and a half years ago now, uh, God led us to step back from that ministry. And for the last three and a half years, my wife and I have been traveling internationally, training pastors and church leaders in Honduras and Cuba and Zambia, Albania, Peru and We've just had an incredible privilege of being able to uh, invest in the next generation of pastors and church leaders and to see God work in them and through them in, in some very difficult circumstances and situations. And along with that, then, uh, God opened an opportunity for me to serve as the area superintendent for 22 churches in the north and northwest suburbs of Chicago. And so um, I jokingly say as I get a chance to, to preach in other free churches that I'm Cabot's boss. Uh, not really. But um, uh, I'll tell you one of the things that I am seeing men that are, God is raising up and, and putting into the churches in, uh, in the free church. And um, in the midst of all the craziness of um, Bible free churches. And it's, it's exciting for me to see that. Um, my wife and I did just get back from Israel. We had the privilege of being the only uh, tour group from the United States in Israel for the entire 10 days that we were there. We uh, flew out of Chicago on the 3rd of August, got into uh, Tel Aviv on the 4th of August, and that next two days later, the uh, country of, of Israel shut down all tour groups coming into the country. And so if you can imagine going to all of the incredible sites uh, in Israel and have nobody there, absolutely nobody there but the 12 of us, um, was just absolutely spectacular. And, uh, and I'm excited for the fact that uh, 
you guys are looking at doing a, uh, a Holy Land tour coming up in May of next year. And if there's any way for you to be able to go, you're thinking about it, let me tell you, it's an incredible experience. I can't guarantee that it will be, that nobody will be there like, like uh, for us, but um, it's, it's, it's absolutely life-changing. In fact, one of the ministries that God has given my wife and I is to actually be in Israel and to be in Jerusalem for six weeks and to help tour groups as they come into uh, Jerusalem. And so back in 2019 and then again in 2020, we actually had the chance to kind of take care of tour groups as they, uh, as they came into Jerusalem. And um, what an incredible experience that was for us. So, so as you think about us from time to time, would you pray for us as, as we're traveling internationally? Um, we're going to be back in Honduras in, in November, and I've been training a group of pastors in inductive Bible study and expository preaching, and, uh, and so we'll be back in Honduras to do that in November, um, in looking forward to 2022 and being in, uh, in Albania. Uh, pray for the pastors in Cuba. You know, Reach Global, the, uh, the mission arm of the Evangelical Free Church, has a powerful ministry in Cuba. But there are some devastating things that are going on in Cuba right now, not only with, with COVID, but also with the, with the political persecution that's going on. And, um, and we've got contact with, with uh, some of the pastors there, and, and uh, they are really going through some pretty tough times right now. So I would ask that, that you be in much prayer for them as well. In the Jefferson Memorial, there is a quote by Thomas Jefferson that is inscribed on one of the walls there that I want to read for you this morning because I think in many ways it reflects where we are at as a nation right now. Thomas Jefferson said this, God who gave us life gave us liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be secure when we remove a conviction that these liberties are a gift of God? Indeed, I tremble for my country. When I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. Jefferson even critic those words 2021. I ask you a question. Have you seen punished and the laws of our country ignored? We've seen that over and over and over again. And I ask this question also, how many times over those last two years have you wondered, God, what on earth are you doing? Or to ask the question, God, are you doing anything at all? Well, we're not alone in asking those questions because we all wrestle with them. And even if you go back to the Old Testament, we saw David wrestling with it in Psalm 13, and as you read several of his psalms, he starts out with wondering, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you doing something? Job wrestled with that. As God allowed Satan to attack Job and his family and, and Job himself, Job wondered, God, all I see are the, are the wicked prospering. And all I see is that those who are trying to be honoring to you are suffering. And Job wrestled with it. As we come this morning 
to the Word of God, we're going to take some time to look at the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet of God who wrestled with these same questions. And so this morning, we're going to take some time to look at the, the agonizing burden that, that the prophet Habakkuk had as he wrestled with some of the same things that were going on in the southern kingdom of Judah during his time. Now, you're going to have to forgive me for choosing to the book of Habakkuk because I'm going to preach the entire book in the time that I have this morning, okay? I don't get to preach sermon series anymore. So when you don't get to preach a, a, a series of sermons, you have to take advantage of the opportunities you got. Just be thankful I'm not preaching Jeremiah or the entire book of Psalms or something like that, okay? But a couple things that I want you to be aware of. The first is this, is that the prophet Habakkuk is only mentioned twice in all of Scripture, and the two places where he's mentioned is actually in the book that he authored. And we see his name being mentioned in the first chapter, and then again in the third chapter of the book of Habakkuk. We don't know much about Habakkuk. It's possible that he may have been a prophet of God who had been schooled in the law of Moses, and, but it's also possible when we get to the third chapter and we see this incredible psalm that, uh, that Habakkuk pens, that it's very possible that Habakkuk may have been a priest in the temple, and that what he was doing as he comes, he is, as he's wrestling with these questions, is he ends with an incredible uh, psalm of worship that would have been sung in the temple as he is serving. The name Habakkuk means to wrestle or to embrace. And, you, and as you listen to the words of Habakkuk, you get the sense that Habakkuk is he's wrestling with what's going on in the world around him. And he's wrestling with, with what God is doing or not doing. And, and the title of my message is, is When Life and God Don't Make Sense. And, and for Habakkuk, that's where he was as he wrestled. He wrestled with the life around him and nothing seemed to make sense. And he's wrestling with what God doesn't seem to be doing. Probably Babylon, city of Jerusalem, generation of... of it's during a time probably when King Jehoiakim is serving as the king in the southern uh, kingdom of Judah. And so best guess is that probably the book of Habakkuk is penned sometime around 620 B.C. During the reign of King Jehoiakim, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 5, reminds us of the fact that Israel is doing evil in the sight of the Lord. In fact, of the 20 kings that served during the divided kingdom of Judah, the 20 kings that served as uh, kings in the southern kingdom, only 12 of the, or excuse me, only 8 of the 20 uh, did that which was right in the, in the eyes of the Lord. 12 of them did evil in the sight of the Lord, and 7 out of the last 9 of those kings did evil in the sight of the Lord. The southern kingdom was characterized by idolatry, violence, uh, immorality, injustice, rebellion against God. That characterized the southern kingdom. But here's something that's interesting. The last king that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord was King Josiah, and it was during the reign of King Josiah that Habakkuk was being raised as a young boy. Keep that in mind. I'm going to come back to that here in a little bit. So as I share with you the book of Habakkuk this morning, if there's one thought that I want you to leave with, it's this. 
in the midst of the seemingly senseless chaos of the world in which we live, when God doesn't seem to be doing anything, don't ever forget that God is still working, he's still acting, and he's always worthy of our patient praise and worship. In the midst of the chaos of the world in which we live, when God doesn't seem to be doing anything, don't ever forget that God is still working and he's always worthy of our praise and our worship. When we come to verse 1 of Habakkuk chapter 1, we read these words, The oracle of Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. In some translations, the word prophecy is used. Here in the English Standard Version, the word oracle is used. It's the Hebrew word Massah, and it has the idea of a burden. And as you read through Habakkuk, you're going you're to feel Habakkuk's burden. His burden for the, the sinfulness of the, of the Jewish people, but also the burden that he has for what God's plan is for dealing with the children of Israel. And I think the first question that I would ask of all of us this morning is this, how burdened am I concerning what's going on around us right now? How burdened are we about the violence? How burdened are we about the immorality? How burdened are we about the, the lack of respect for, for the laws of our country? How burdened are we for the, the moral and spiritual uh, decay and depravity of our country right now? Is it breaking our hearts? Or we just find ourselves going along in life the way we've always gone? In Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 to 11, we have the first interaction be, be, between Habakkuk and God. And the book of Habakkuk is basically divided into three parts. The first two parts are a dialogue between God and Habakkuk. Habakkuk asking a question of God, God responding, and then Habakkuk asking a second question of God, God responding, and then when we come to the third chapter of Habakkuk, it's this incredible uh, psalm of praise and worship that Habakkuk offers up to God. And the first question and answer that, that we have here with Habakkuk and God, the main point is this. When chaos reigns, our unseen God is still working. Keep that in mind. When chaos reigns, when everything around us is just falling apart, our unseen God is still working. Habakkuk's question to God was this, God, where are you? Where are you in the midst of all the chaos that's going on around us? In verse 2 of Habakkuk chapter 1, it says, O Lord, how long will I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? How long? Habakkuk goes on to say, I see, I see sinfulness everywhere. I see strife. I see contention. I see a total disregard for the law. I see the wicked thriving, and I see the wicked, <clears throat> excuse me, the wicked surrounding the righteous. And justice is perverted. Things haven't changed a whole lot in 2,700 years, have they? It's not any different today. In fact, you can almost picture Habakkuk sitting and watching Fox News or CNN 
or reading the daily newspaper. Anybody still read a daily newspaper? Anybody have a few of you? You know what? Every time I ask that question, it's always those of us who are 65 or older that are still, still reading the daily newspaper. But you know, as you think about all that Habakkuk is experiencing and questioning God, it, nothing's changed. We're asking those same questions. God, we see violence. We see total disregard for your law. We see injustice. And God, you don't seem to be doing anything at all. As we listen to Habakkuk's cry and his frustration, I find myself asking this question, am I as overwhelmed with the violence and destruction as Habakkuk was? Am I as frustrated with God's seeming lack of, of responding as Habakkuk was? And am I angered that there doesn't seem to be any justice? That's what, that's what Habakkuk was wrestling with. And I would hope that there are times, I, I would hope all of us are wrestling with that, that we're not just complacent, that we're not just saying, God, whatever, but that our hearts are stirred, that there's a burden in our heart for what's going on. God answers Habakkuk, beginning in verse 5. And in verse 5 of Habakkuk chapter 1, God says this to Habakkuk. Habakkuk, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Look around, Habakkuk. What do you see? How much time do we spend just looking around and saying, God, help me to see what you're doing? God goes on in Habakkuk uh, chapter 1, verse 6, and he says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to see his dwellings, not their own. And then as you go and continue to read verses 7 to 11, God continues to describe the wickedness of the Babylonians. And I've wondered about that. And it occurred to me that as God is starting to reveal to Habakkuk just what he's doing, he wants Habakkuk to just to be overwhelmed with the evil of the nation that God is about to use to bring judgment on the children of Israel. If that doesn't stir your heart like it stirred Habakkuk's heart, we've got to rethink it. Three things that come out of this. The first is this. God is at work in ways that we can't see. God's message to Habakkuk is 25 years before the Babylonians will come in and take captive the southern kingdom of Judah, destroy the temple, destroy Jerusalem and its walls, and take captives, leading up to the and stronger. The Babylonian Empire is defeating the Assyrians who had taken and destroyed the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes. He, the Babylonian Empire has also um, taken uh, and overcome the Egyptians who were fighting from the south, and the Babylonian Empire has now become an incredibly powerful empire. But there's something else going on. 
it's during that period of time that God is beginning to raise up the next generation of young men who are going to have a profound influence in the Babylonian Empire for 60 years after they are taken captive. When you can't see anything going on, God was still working. There was still a remnant of Jewish families in Israel, in the southern kingdom, who were honoring the Lord and who were raising up their children to be honoring to the Lord, to be committed to the law of God and to be young men of conviction. And so during that time, it was men like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who are growing up in godly homes, whom God is preparing so that when they are taken captive to Babylon, that God would use them to have a profound influence for for God's kingdom and for God's glory in Babylon. And I would challenge you this morning, parents, that as you have kids in the midst of all the craziness that's going on and all the immorality that's going on, that you are raising up your kids to be kids who are loving the Lord, who want to be obedient to God's word, and who are going to be young men and women of conviction. And kids, young adults, children, do you hear me? You're the next generation. God wants to raise you up, to use you, to have a profound influence on the wicked culture in which we are living, to not just blend in, to not just buy into all of the lies of the culture, but to take a stand and to say, I'm going to be a a man of conviction. I'm going to be a woman of conviction. Our country needs it. They need you. And even now in your schools, as you have friends that are trying to get you to do things that you shouldn't be doing and you know they're wrong, that you'll be a a person of conviction who will say, I'm not going to do that because it's not honoring to the Lord. See, even when it seemed like God was doing nothing, he was doing something. Something profound. In raising up a generation of young men, they could have a profound influence for him. The second thing in this first response of God is this. God is at work in ways that don't always make sense. When God tells Habakkuk, Habakkuk, you won't believe what I'm, going about, what I'm about to do even if I told you. There's a good reason why God didn't tell Habakkuk what he was going to do. Habakkuk wouldn't have believed it and he wouldn't have agreed with it. And how many times has God done something in our lives where if he had come to us first and asked for our permission, to, if he had come and said, here, here's what I'm thinking about doing, what do you think? How many of us would have been inclined to say, God, not a chance? Not a chance. It's a good reason why God didn't tell Habakkuk what he was going to do. But what God was doing was he was going to raise up the Babylonians to come in and to bring judgment on the children of Israel. And we need to realize that there are going to be many times when what God does in our lives doesn't make sense. The question is is whether we're willing to accept that and trust God in the midst of it. Third thing that we see in God's response here is that God is at work even when he chooses to do nothing. 
Let me say that again. That may seem strange. God is at work even when he chooses to do nothing. If you go back to verse 3 of, of chapter 1, Habakkuk says to God, God, you are idly looking at wrong. That's a pretty bold statement to say, God, you're not doing anything. There's violence, there's all kinds of iniquity, and God, you're not doing anything. That's a pretty, pretty harsh accusation towards God. The passage of scripture that I had read this morning from Romans chapter 1 is a reminder of the fact that we are living in a, in a spiritual culture that is depraved that has walked away from God and is denying God and we're worshiping the creature, the creature, or the creation rather than the creator. And the passage of scripture that was read ended at verse 23, but as you go to verses 24 and following, listen to what it says in verse 24. God gave them six. God gave them with all my heart. He backed off and he said, all right, do you think you know better? You think you've got... The, the right way of, of living life, and you, you think that's right? All right, I'm just going to back off, and I'm going to let your, your lust and your depravity and your debased mind, I'm going to let it all just go. And oftentimes, God's judgment and God's punishment on individuals or on a nation is just simply for God to back off and to say, all right, I'm just going to give you over to all of your choices. And let's see how that works. We need to be in, in prayer for our country. We need to be in prayer for the gener next generation. That in the midst of all of the, the evil that we see, that, that God is going to protect. But we also need to understand that there are times when God just backs away and says, go for it. See if all of your ideas really work out well. We are living in a culture that lusts after what is evil and despises what is good. We come to the second half of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2, and now Habakkuk and God have another dialogue. Habakkuk doesn't like what he heard. He doesn't like the fact that God's going to use the Babylonians to... Uh, to bring judgment on the children of Israel. And Habakkuk has no problem in telling God this. But here's the point, is that when God's plans and ways don't make sense, his justice is still going to prevail. So even as we look at our culture and we see the craziness that's going on, we need to understand that there is going to come a day when God is going to bring judgment and that God's justice will always prevail. Habakkuk's response to God when he hears what God is going to do is recorded for us beginning in verse 13. Habakkuk raises this question to God. God, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he do you see anything wrong with Habakkuk's argument? Let, let, let me read that again. He says, God, you idly look at traitors. You remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. What's wrong with that? 
well, this is incredibly bad theology. I don't know whether Habakkuk was asleep when he was going through prophet school and came to the whole issue of righteousness and unrighteousness and humanity's sinfulness, but this is incredibly bad theological, a bad theological assessment. In no way, in no way were the Israelites more righteous than the Chaldeans. In 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse 9, this is during the time that Manasseh was king of Judah, roughly about 20 years before Habakkuk. Verse 9 says this, Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. You hear that? There is not a chance that the children of Israel were more righteous than the Babylonians. Two things come out of this. The first is this. Beware of the temptation to think that somehow we are better than they. Don't ever come to the point in your life when you are looking at the people around you who are living in sinfulness and somehow think, I'm better than they are. The only reason that we are righteous is because of what Jesus Christ did for us. It was because of his mercy and grace not because of anything we did. And we can never come to that point in our lives where we think that somehow I'm a better person than they are. Who I am is because of who I am in Christ, not because of what I have done. Romans 3.10 is very clear. There is none righteous, not one. The second thing in this second dialogue between Habakkuk and God is this. Beware the temptation to think that somehow we have a better idea or a better plan than God. That somehow we have a better understanding of the situation. In verse 1 of Habakkuk chapter 2, at the end of Habakkuk's argument in response to God's first answer, Habakkuk says this. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Do you hear, Habakkuk? When, if, if you've ever been to Israel or when you get to Israel, you're going to see that there are lots of towers, lots of watchtowers. The cities were built with watchtowers so that they could watch for the enemy coming and, and sound the alarm and and so Habakkuk envisions himself standing on one of the watchtowers, and he's just, he says, I'm waiting for God to respond to me. I think I've given him a pretty good argument for, for why the Babylonians uh, is a bad idea. And I'm just waiting for God to respond to me so that I can then respond to him concerning my complaint. Don't ever think that somehow we have a better idea or a better plan than God. In verse 2 of Habakkuk 2, God then replies to Habakkuk. And God's reply is very simply this, my time of justice will come, just be patient. Patience is not a spiritual quality that we do very well, right? Right? How many of us are very impatient? Yeah, all of us. You just don't want to raise your hand. I get you. But all of us wrestle with that. 
We want God to do his thing in our time and for our benefit instead of God doing his thing in his time for his benefit and his glory. In verse 2, Habakkuk, chapter 2, Habakkuk says this, or the Lord says this to Habakkuk. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that we may run, so that he may, it would be easy for you, it would be easy so that he who, it says he who, big difference. The issue wasn't just simply to put a billboard up there so that everybody that went by would see it. The issue was to put it in bold letters to put the billboard up there so that the person that reads it will respond and run and let other people know. And that's a huge responsibility that we have in the world in which we live is that we are seeing God is going to bring judgment on this world. The question is is that when we see that and when we're reminded of that, are we running to let other people know? In verse 3, God says, get ready and watch. Be patient. The appointed time will not delay, and it will not be late. It's one of the beautiful things about God. He's not early, but he's never late. Then we come to verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. And God is speaking about the Babylonians. He said, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Hear that? The righteous shall live not by his actions, but by his faith, by his trust in God. That verse, the last half of that verse, the righteous shall live by faith, is quoted three times in the New Testament. One of those was what was read earlier in Romans chapter 1. It's also provided for us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, and then again in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38. And in all three occasions, the issue is this. It's not about what you're doing. It's about who you are trusting in. Our righteousness is not about us. It's about God. It's about putting our faith and trust in him and what Jesus Christ did for us when he went to the cross and he died on the cross and then was raised from the dead. That is why we can be called righteous. And that once we put our faith and trust in him, we take on the righteousness of God. And in taking on the righteousness of God, we now need to live by faith. We're not trusting Jesus Christ simply so we can avoid hell. We are trusting in Jesus Christ in order that he might change our lives from that moment on, that he might be our Lord and Savior, and that we might follow after him and trust him every step of the way. God goes on then in the rest of the chapter to use a series of proverbial quotes to actually mock the Babylonians. As God answers Habakkuk, he says, Habakkuk, I want you to understand that I am going to bring judgment on the Babylonians. They are arrogant. They think that they can do whatever they want. They can rob people, kill people, and that it's no big deal. But God is telling Habakkuk, Habakkuk, There are huge judgments that are going to come on the the Babylonians. And so beginning in verse 4 and all the way down to verse 20, there's a series of woes that God offers. And as he offers those woes, they're actually proverbial quotes that he is bringing against the Babylonians. 
So there's a woe to the Babylonians because they are proud. A woe to the Babylonians because they are greedy, because they are dishonest, because they are violent, because they are sensual, because they are idolaters. And so the whole rest of chapter 2 is about God mocking the Babylonians because God's judgment is going to come upon them. And what's beautiful in the midst of that is that there are words of hope in the midst of God's judgment on the Babylonians. Verse 14, for the earth of chapter 2, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What beautiful words. In the midst of all that God is going to do in bringing judgment to this world, we have these beautiful words of the fact that the glory of God and the knowledge of the glory of God is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The last thing that we want to look at is chapter 3 and Habakkuk's response to God's answer to his second question. And the response is this, regardless what we might think of God's plans, God is still worthy of our praise. He is still worthy of our praise. Habakkuk's prayer in response to God's answers is basically this, I will make known the Lord is my strength. Four things as I close. You were right, Cabot. When a pastor says that uh, he's got one final thing to say, he doesn't really mean it. The first is this. Habakkuk responds to God with these words, I have heard and I am in awe. God, I have heard what you said, and I am just absolutely in awe. And in verse 2 of chapter 3, would you for the children of Israel, that Habakkuk is looking all the way back to when God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. In the darkest moment of Israel's life, God shined his light and delivered the children of Israel. And you get a feel. In fact, there, there's a sense in which in chapter 3 that, that, Mo, that Habakkuk is going back to Moses' prayer as the children of Israel are, are getting ready to leave um, and go to the promised land, and Moses is not able to go. That, um, that some of the same things that Moses praises the Lord for, Habakkuk does as well. In verse 3 of chapter 3, his, Habakkuk says, Lord, your splendor covers the heavens and the earth and are full of his praise. In verse 6, he says, his were the everlasting ways. And there's just a, there's a picture there when he talks about uh, Timon and Mount Paran. And I would encourage you, go home and read the whole book of Habakkuk sometime this week. But when you come to chapter 3, Habakkuk is talking about uh, Taman and, and uh, Mount Har Haran. Those were sites east of where he is, east of Israel, east of the Jordan. And so he's picturing God's sunlight, God's, uh, the sunrise of God in a dark world. And so Habakkuk is saying, God, what you've done in the past, do it again. When we come to verse 16, we see this. Habakkuk says, though I tremble, I will quietly wait. As I think about the potential for God bringing judgment on our country, it doesn't excite me. 
could be pretty scary. But in the midst of that, I need to be willing to say, God, I'm going to quietly wait and trust you. It goes back to Thomas Jefferson's quote that I shared with you at the beginning of the message. I tremble for our country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. The last thing that we see with Habakkuk's response to God is this. He says, no matter what, no matter what, I will rejoice in the Lord. Verses 17 and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Bob Deffenbaugh, who is a Dallas prof, pastor, prolific author, he put it this way. Though the Social Security fund is depleted, though the stock market crashes, though my insurance company goes bankrupt and my IRA account vaporizes, though I lose my job or my business fails, I will rejoice in the Lord. Over the course of three chapters, God changed the heart of Habakkuk from one of being critical to one of being um, one praising the Lord. Habakkuk's attitude changed. His actions changed. He went from complaining to confessing. He went from wondering to worshiping. He went from questioning to proclaiming. God, the Lord is my strength. Verse 19. As we bring our time to a close, may we not forget that God is always aware. God is always engaged. And God is always worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we live in difficult times. They're scary times. But Lord, you are our strength and we can trust in you. Lord, I pray that, um, that we find ourselves beginning to question why, Lord, or where, Lord. That is, Habakkuk was willing to cry out to you, Lord, you are my strength. I will rejoice in you. May, Lord, that be what we do as well. And, Lord, may we be men and women of hope. May we be young people of hope looking for the ways in which you are going to use us, even in the midst of the chaos. In Christ I pray, amen.